morning. <laughs> so, my name's Chris Burrows. Uh, it's good to be with you here today in person and, and to those tuning in online as we continue our series going through the Lord's Prayer, uh, the series titled Talking with God, learning uh, from this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, this well-known prayer. And we've, we've uh, already done two weeks, and this is the third week of the nine-week series. And before jumping into the passage in the sermon for today, um, I just want to recap some of the details that we talked about in, in the first message, the overview that might be helpful as we break down this first petition of the Lord's Prayer, as it's seen in Matthew. So uh, if you could bring up the passage, uh, if you wouldn't mind. So this passage, or this prayer, known as the Lord's Prayer, it has two characters, right? We have the prayer, and we have Jesus. Uh, uh, we have the prayer, who is Jesus, and then we have the other character, which is God in this instance. In this conversation, there are seven requests that happen, seven petitions being made to God. There is a, a shift in the passage about halfway through that, that in the first half, we see an emphasis on God, on His kingdom coming, on His will being done. And in the second half, the emphasis shifts on uh, asking for things for ourselves, asking for uh, our daily bread, asking for forgiveness from our sins, asking to not be led into temptation. And uh, the, the, the verbs, the grammar of it is that the prayer is calling upon God to do something, almost in a commanding way, because God is tr really and truly the only one that can do these things that are being asked for in the Lord's Prayer. Now, with that little recap in mind, let's uh, read verse 9 through 13 of Matthew 6. It says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we just give you glory this morning. We thank you for the sun. We thank you uh, for getting us here safely and just ask that your presence would be in this place, uh, that you would uh, minister to us uh, as we seek to learn more about you and to fall more in love with you, Father. So we ask your blessing over our time this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week we looked at the first phrase of this prayer, uh, look at the address, uh, Our Father in Heaven. And in this week we start with the first petition or the first request that's being made in the prayer, which is for uh, its hallowed be your name. It's the first of seven requests. And perhaps this phrase does not seem too out, or out of the ordinary for you because maybe you've been around church for a while. Uh, uh, but when we look at this phrase, we take a look at it, the language used is actually quite foreign. We don't really talk like this, hallowed be your name or hallowed be thy name. So let's start first by sort of looking at different translations of this phrase uh, before defining some of its terms. And so I have some uh, different translations up here that they each emphasize a different uh, aspect of this statement. So we have uh, in the English translations, we've got hallowed be your name, has the most. May your name be kept holy is, is another, the NLT emphasizes. May your name be honored is the net translation. And the message says, reveal who you are. 
And these all are great translations and they capture different elements of what is being asked of God in this petition. So let's look at this strange phrase. So we've got this first thing to define, which is name. And you may be thinking, why, why would we need to define name? A name isn't exactly a foreign thing to us, but the attention and the meaning that we attribute to names and naming is different for us than it would have been in ancient Near Eastern culture and in the first century church. See, for us in the global north and in the global west, we tend to not attribute too much meaning to a name. Uh, perhaps in naming a child, we use an, an important family name or we, um, we pick a groovy Bible name that we like and just hope that they just follow all the good parts of that character. <laughs> or, and sometimes we put PhD or MD next to a name that sort of tell of a story or attach meaning to their name. So we don't, we don't really put much meaning there. You know, sometimes we're actually intentionally indifferent with naming. For instance, in 2016, you might remember this, but the British public was given the opportunity to name a fleet of research vessels uh, for science. And they took to the internet and they sent out a poll for people to submit the names that they wanted to see on these boats. And the reigning name for the lead fleet vessel was Boaty McBoatface. which, in their defense, it was an homage to, uh, in 2012, they named an owl, um, what was it, Hootie Mick Owl Face. <laughs> so there's some meaning there, there's, there's a callback there. But in the Bible, we see uh, a deeper meaning in the names of people. In one sense, names can be self-fulfilling prophecies, or they, des they describe the character that the person will become or that they display. For instance, if you think uh, back to Naomi, she starts going by Mara because she was bitter and Mara meant bitter. Peter was named so because it translated as rock and he would be the one upon whom the Lord would build his church, the rock upon whom uh, the Lord would build the church. Jesus' own name uh, derives back to the Old Testament name of Joshua, which means God is salvation. Yahweh, the, the personal name that God gives and uh, reveals himself to his people with, means to save, to rescue. So a name has a deeper meaning, and it also gives a glimpse into a person's character and into the manner of actions that, they, that will define their life. So many times in the Old Testament you see, uh, I am the Lord your God who did this thing. Not only the character, but also the actions that that person has done are all encompassed in this idea of name. Uh, hmm. So, referring, uh, John Noland is a, a Bible scholar, and he, he uh, draws out this significance well. He says, referring to the name of God points to his specific personal identity as made known in his deeds and self-revelation. So, like how a tree has... Uh, a long-reaching and complex system of roots that lie under the surface that are still part of it, the name of God may be referenced just as God, or just like the tree, but under the surface are all uh, a, a myriad of things of what he's done and who he is is all encompassed in his name. It represents his character, that he's just, he's merciful, loving, compassionate, powerful, never-changing. 
and it represents his actions. God as creator, God of Israel, God who brought the people out of Egypt, the God of our good news, the God who is making all things new. So that's what's all uh, caught up in, in the phrase name of this first petition. But what about the stranger uh, word used, hallowed? Hallowed be your name. Hallow should be somewhat familiar, right? Because uh, Halloween, uh, Halloween used to be a time when people would dress up as uh, saints of the church and honor them in, in their memory. And so uh, it was hallow the saints, the holy ones, and then evening, hallowed evening got shortened to Halloween. So that's how he got that word. But so hallow means uh, holy. It means the same word we have for uh, sanctify. Uh, Daryl Johnson, one book writer, he uses the phrase uh, holify. It's, it's, it's a, an action that's happening. It isn't just a description, but it's to hallow is, um, there's a verb to it. It's to, to be hallowed or to make holy or to sanctify. There's an action with hallowed. So when we bring it all together, understanding the meaning behind God's name, his character, what he has done, paired with uh, the hallowing of that name, we find ourselves looking at something that looks a lot like praise. To make holy the name of God is praise. The net translation gets at this when it says, may your name be honored, right? There's action there. And also other passages of scripture use this language that we see in the Lord's Prayer, especially in the Psalms. And I'm going to read a couple of them here. Psalm 8.1 O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 34.3, O magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. These are praises. Psalm 54.1, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. The Lord acting out of his character and praise, petition. Psalm 113, praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Isaiah 29:23. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands, in his midst they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. These verses help paint a picture, fill a picture of, and a context of what it looks like to hallow the name of God. And when we pray, when we're telling God to hallow himself, to, to holify himself, this doesn't mean that we're asking for him to do something earth-shattering or cataclysmic or to hop on the celestial PA system and make himself known that way. It doesn't really even ask him to repeat some of the things he's done before. We're not asking him to split the Red Sea again or to bring down the walls of Jericho. So what does it mean? What are we actually inviting God to do in this first request for him to hallow his name? Leon Morris puts it well. He says, this prayer is not so much a petition that God will do some great act that will show everyone who and what he is, as it is a prayer that he will bring people to a proper attitude toward him. It expresses an aspiration that he who is holy will be seen to be holy and treated throughout his creation as holy. That he who is holy would be seen as holy and treated as such throughout creation. So if, if this is 
needing to be prayed, if Jesus is teaching for us to include this in our prayer to God, in this template he gives for us in our conversations with God, there's obviously something not right going on. <clears throat> if God's name is needed to be hallowed in the eyes of the world, everyone must not be already doing that, right? There isn't... Uh, um, God's name, who he is and what he has done is not viewed positively throughout the world. God's revealing of himself always invites a response, but that response is not always the correct one. If you think back to the Exodus with Pharaoh, his heart was hardened when given the opportunity to respond to God. In this instance, God's name is not being hallowed or revered or praised. God's name is mistreated or slandered, mocked. And we see that in the world today. We see the mistreatment, mistreatment of the name of God and the person of Jesus. And I don't just mean saying OMG, but they mock the gospel message. They find idea of sin or judgment funny. And just like how the crowds mocked Jesus on his way to the cross and on the cross, humanity mocks God for what he has done for them. When God reveals himself, sometimes his name is mistreated. And sometimes it's misunderstood. Misunderstanding who God is, what he has promised to do, and who his character is. Perhaps you've heard something along these lines in your day-to-day. -day. If, if God is good and worthy of my praise, then why isn't the world perfect? Why would he let us mess it up in the first place? Why would he be upset about me doing things that feel good? Why would he design me with certain impulses and passions that are wrong for me to indulge? Why is there so much evil and disobedience within the walls of the church? And why is there so many good things that feel good outside the walls of the church? Why do I feel like I'm fine without him? I got this far on my own. Why can't I just keep going that way? And these are legitimate questions, right? If God isn't understood, if scripture isn't revered, it usually has something to do with the humanist elevation of humanity with its ideals for what progress and happiness and success look like, and also a lowering of God, doubting that he is all-knowing, doubting that he is all-loving, that he is powerful. Whether through misunderstanding or mistreatment, God's name is not hallowed throughout the earth. Which is why Jesus tells us to pray for this very thing. St. Uh, Augustine, uh, or Augustine, co comments on the why and the how of this request. He says, the making of this petition, this request, does not imply that the name of God is not holy, it is made so that this name may be held holy by men, that is, so that God may become known to them in such a way that they will deem nothing more holy, nothing which they would be more fearful to offend. And this is what is now being done as long as the gospel, by becoming known throughout the various nations, is making the name of God revered through the ministry of his Son, of Jesus. And we're praying and we're asking God to hallow his name, for him to be seen 
as he truly is before the world, to be seen as holy. But this is really a work that only he can do. In fact, the Lord's prayer is chock full of things that really and truly only the Lord can do for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done, to forgive us our sins. Throughout the history of redemption, time and time again throughout Scripture, it is God who draws near to us. It is God making the first move towards humanity. He is always the one that enters into our space so that we can respond to him. Think to your own testimonies. It is God who sought you through whatever it was that allowed you to respond to him and to enter into relationship with him. That is why faith is a gift of God. As God has made himself known to those who believe, who now love and praise him, because we know him and we recognize what he has done, we are praying that God would also reveal himself as holy to the rest of the world, the rest of fallen humanity, so that they have the same opportunity to respond in relationship and to respond in praise. And the phrase that summarizes this request for God is held in this idea, is that the hallowing of God's name happens in the response of praise from those who have heard and believed what Jesus Christ has done for them. The hallowing of God's name happens in the response of praise of those who have heard and who have believed what Jesus Christ has done for them. When we pray, we are literally praying praises, asking God to add more voices to the choir. We want to see more and more people responding to God as He truly is. It's it's only God's work and His will in this world and through His church that can fulfill this request. We ourselves are products of this work, this hallowing, and because of that, we give praises back to God. We've seen who He is. We know what He has done for us. But what does praise look like in your lives? in the day-to-day. Perhaps many of you, like me, find that in our conversations with God, this whole series is about talking with God, maybe you find yourselves rushing through the praise portion just to get to the, uh, the request part, or maybe seeing it as the formality or the secret password so that God will answer your prayers. We talked earlier about the things that keep humanity from knowing God's name and from hallowing it, but what keeps us, those who have tasted and seen that Lord is good, what keeps us from giving praise to Him daily in our prayers? Firstly, can be our worries. Spending so much time in our prayers venting about the difficulties of life, which is good, He wants us to, that we forget to acknowledge God. We're so overburdened by our own worries and what's going on that we, we don't praise God. Or maybe it's pride that we have. Life is so great so far. My 10-year plan is set. It's 401k, looking healthy. I'm having a great time here in this life I've built. And that leads to forgetfulness, right? Forgetting how much we need God forgetting what he has done for us 
could be worries, it could be forgetfulness, pride, it could be misunderstanding as well about who God is and how he's promised to operate. Surely God wouldn't let me lose my job. Surely God wouldn't let me experience depression or other mental illness, to be cheated on, to be poor, to be unhappy, to be forever single, to live with chronic pain or illness. Surely God wouldn't leave me without feeling purpose or destiny. He wouldn't let my family member die before their time or let a family member not believe in him. Surely God wouldn't let me experience lack or poverty or tragedy. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's misunderstanding. Is that we know that those are realities of this world. These are things that God is making new, right? But we're not promised health. We're not promised um, wealth or happiness. We're promised joy. We're promised an inheritance to come. We're promised that this life isn't the end. But all those other things that can have us misunderstand and lead us not to praise God, we're not promised that. Maybe it's worries, maybe it's forgetfulness, misunderstanding, or maybe it's guilt. Feeling the heavy weight of our own sin today or the weight of sins in our past that may leave us feeling unworthy even after believing in Him, unworthy to come before Him, to talk to Him, to offer praise, make us feel unclean. But here's the truth for the one here today that feels burdened by their own sin, that does know the Lord, is that even, even in the moment of your worst sin that feels the most gross to you, God loves you just as much in that moment as he did in the moment of your greatest service to him. He loves you just as much in your biggest moment of disobedience as he does in the greatest moment of your obedience. God will never love you more because it's not possible for him to love you more. And he will never love you less. His love for you is constant. There's no way for him to be less proud that you're his child. Has any, uh, have any of you heard of the Stockdale Paradox? Anyone? No? All right. I learned about it on Thursday, so. <laughs> yeah, I'm putting that in there. So uh, the name comes from Admiral James Stockdale, who was a prisoner of war during Vietnam. Uh, he was in a POW camp for seven plus years. He was the highest ranking officer uh, in that POW camp. And going through torture many times, there for seven years, he never cracked and he survived it and is credited for uh, being the sole reason that many of the men also survived that experience. And he credits his success to uh, um, an approach of mindset, a mindset of facing reality um, that those who didn't make it through the POW camp often didn't have. So 
there would be those that thought the secret to endure such an experience, to endure torture, was just blatant optimism. Uh, it's going to be okay. We'll be out by Christmas. Christmas came, and they're still there. We'll be out by Easter, or Fourth of July, or Thanksgiving, but those dates would come and go, and those hopes were dashed. And those were the people that it was just not really facing reality didn't end up making it if it was just unrealistic optimism. But he, he had a different mindset that he credits to his success. That is known as the Stockdale Paradox, which says, you must never confuse the faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. It's a paradox. In one hand, you have faith that you're going to prevail, but at the same time, looking, taking a good hard look at what's going on and not being unrealistic about the situations. Now, why do I bring this up? We are not prisoners, right? We're not trying to escape a prison. But we do face a reality that we're wanting desperately to live lives of praise to God, knowing that he has the victory, knowing that we have an inheritance, and all these things that give us hope, all simultaneously living in a world that has so many terrible things that make us want to curl up in the fetal position and suck our thumbs. And obviously adapting this, I, I think holding this paradox intention in our own lives, where in one hand we know um, who God is, that he is in control, that, he, that our suffering does not make us happy, that our suffering makes us more like Christ. We hold that in one hand. And then we also ha hold the reality that things are hard, that suffering does happen, that this situation that's going on in my family or with, uh, at work or whatever, that's bad, and I don't have to pretend that that's not bad as a way of coping, as a way of suppressing. And I think this is why Paul can say in, in 2 Corinthians 4, this is a man who was shipwrecked, uh, beaten many times, one time so bad they actually thought his, he was dead and they took him outside the city because, oh, he's dead, and he got back, uh, back up again. So this is a man that has, has faced a lot of trials. And he says, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. I'm wasting away <laughs> externally. This is tough. There's no way to get around that. I don't understand this, but at the same time, I know who God is. I know what he has promised to me, what he's actually promised, not the fake promises of, that we say of, of wealth or, or health or everything's going to be okay or everyone that we know is going to believe in God. He doesn't promise those things, but the things that he has, has promised to never leave or forsake us, to resurrect us like Jesus on the last day, these are the things that we hold in tension with the circumstances of our reality. The hallowing of God's name happens in the response of praise from us, from those who have heard and tasted and seen and believed what Jesus has done for us. 
So what are some practical steps for us for how to give God praise in our lives this week, no matter how we come to the table? So for the, for the person, in this, and if this fits the bill for you, cool, if it doesn't, whatever, but for, for the person that has forgotten just what God has done, or it's, it's not really on the forefront of the mind anymore, is worried, distracted, there's two things, a uh, little homework for this week. Uh, one is to read the Gospel of Matthew, or any Gospel really, and the reason I say that is to r- remind ourselves, again, of the story of the good news, what Jesus has done. And also, uh, another practice that's great in this way is to go back through uh, old journals, seeing situations that were so hard and seeing how you were brought through them, seeing God's faithfulness over time. These are ways that we can see, uh, uh, see the work of the Lord in our lives. And, and then the third thing is, is in that is to, to pray to God and give Him praise. Is it for the person that has forgotten? Read about his works in Scripture. Read about his works in your life and, and then pray. For the one that feels the weight of their current uh, circumstance is um, such that it is hard to focus on praying on God because you're so worried. Use a timer, use your phone, your stopwatch, whatever, and set a timer for three minutes. And for the first three minutes, of your time, whenever that is, in the car, whatever, talking with the Lord, spend that time uh, praying the character of God, praying, confessing who He is, His promises, His actions, such as, God, you are sovereign. God, you are powerful. These are His character, or or the things that He's done. God, you are faithful to Abraham to bear him a child. God, you are faithful to Israel. You brought them out of slavery confessing the things that he has done and his promises. And find that the weight of the current circumstance that's so heavy in the front of the mind is put in its proper place when we allow ourselves to slow down, to see who God is and what he has done. Doesn't, doesn't mean that the worry is going to go away necessarily, but it's walking in that tension. And in that, then asking God for the things that we need how we need Him to show up. So that we're not just spouting out needs, 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 but we're also refocusing, recentering our hearts. Lord, in this, I know that you are sovereign. I know that you are powerful. So that's for the person that uh, current circumstance is such that it's hard to focus on praising God. And then the third, for the one that feels unworthy of God, unworthy to come to Him in praise. It was a little thing I got from counseling a couple years ago. It's, it's even though I feel blank, saying, saying or writing this down, even though I feel blank, unworthy, or not good enough, or not unlovable, I know that I am your child, or fill that in. I know that I am delighted in by you. I know that you died for me. That's the second phrase. Three, because... Um, uh, be, uh, oh, sorry, I got caught up. Oh, sorry. I messed this up, didn't I? I'll look over here. Even though I feel this, I know this, so I will praise you for that. And it's just a template to run through or journal through. But these are all, pick one of these or whatever matches your current circumstance, the day-to-day, and 
as ways that we can recenter ourselves to give praises back to God in our lives. Right? Will you pray with me? Father, you are worthy of our praise. And we just thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us, Lord, that we have tasted and seen that you are good. And um, Lord, I just ask that Holy Spirit, you would, um, you would meet all of us where we are this week, whatever the situations are, and, and that we would feel your presence, Lord, and that we would be able, you would give us the strength to, to even in the midst of whatever's going on, Father, that we would praise you. And this is a work that you and only you can do in our lives. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.